Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVM LP Asheville 103.7, streaming online WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI FM. Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. And hello to my friend Mary, who lives just south of Taos. And I know she listens to this show every Saturday morning while she makes lunch. I'd like to thank Walter Parks for our theme song. Thank you, Walter Parks. And if you're interested in more of Walter's music, WalterParks.com is a great place to start. And if you'd like to reach out to me, Nave at jamesnave.com, Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. You can always reach out to me there and tell me your story. What are you up to? What, what are you doing right now in this, this big round world that keeps spinning every day? Round and round we go. So Nave at jamesnave.com if you'd like to reach out to me. And if you'd like to know a little bit more about Twice Five Miles, the name of this show, but you can go to twicefivemiles.com and find out all about it. So that's another option for you. Little bits of information on that website that will help you get your, your work over the finish line, that creative work or whatever it is you're doing at the moment. Get it over the finish line move it far further down the further down the road and today's speaking of the road i have a dear friend on with us who is going to tell some stories possibly we'll talk about poetry we'll talk about music talk about the current things of the world and Minton Sparks is my guest, and she's been on the show once before, so she's a returning guest. And I'm so thrilled to have you here, Minton. Thanks so much for taking the time out of your day to be with us. So glad to be here. Thank you for having me. So I want to start our conversation by picking up a story that you were telling me recently about something you and your brother are very excited about doing which is a, a podcast. And the reason I bring that up is because I, I love podcasting and I love the radio and I, I love language and how language unfolds throughout all the different electronic tributaries. And so I would just like for you to start by telling us about why you're excited to be working with your brother. And I've met your brother and, and he's cooked a meal for me in Nashville, Tennessee. And I know he's an actor among other things. So you come from a family of creative characters. So what's this about the podcast you're up to? He made a studio in his back bedroom closet. He soundproofed it and got great microphones. He was going to do some podcasting and then we started talking. So we thought that we would invite older siblings on and call it older siblings because, you know, if you've had a sibling across the years, the stories just go everywhere. I remember when he moved back to Nashville from LA, just his physical presence made me remember all these things that I hadn't remembered in years. You just have to be over 47 to be considered an older sibling and have a sibling that you've had for all those years and start telling stories. We did our first one. We cried laughing. I mean, we, we fell out of the chair laughing just about all the stuff we'd been through when we were little. We used to work in an amusement park together and we got into all those stories and endless the amount of stories. So we're hoping that other pairs of older siblings will come on our show. We'll give them an interview format and we'll interact with them and then they'll get down to uh, what's going on with them. So one of the reasons I, I asked this, and for you folks listening out there, Minton 
is a, a wonderful storyteller. In fact, she makes her living telling stories and writing poetry, and she's a fantastic national level performer. So I wanted to open with the idea of the podcast just to get a sense of well, what in the world would a storyteller want to do with a, with a podcast? So you talk about our, our older siblings, and I was wondering if you maybe would give us a sample of some story that you told your brother or a story your brother told you while you were developing this, something you remember. I remember tons of things about my siblings. I can tell you a million stories. It's, it's a wonderful idea. So tell, tell me something about one of your siblings. I didn't know why he got into acting. So in the middle of the podcast, I just was going through things and said, from a small town in Tennessee, how did you end up moving to LA and becoming an actor? And he told the story to me on that day that he had seen a a National Geographic story on Lawrence of Olivier, and he had stayed in great, fantastic physical shape. And his 15-year-old mind decided, hey, I want to be an actor. Look at Lawrence Olivier. Not, Not any of his acting skills, but just that he had stayed in such great shape for the acting. And then he found out about me that I used to have my friends come over in the afternoon after elementary school and we would hyperventilate and pass out. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't have any idea. He was like, oh my gosh, I had no idea that was going on. I was like, oh yeah, we passed out every day. I mean, for probably all of fifth grade. Not that that was some big insightful story. Growing up in the same home, you think you've had this similar situation, but I think on the podcast, what we're finding is all these different angles, either on one story or people had such different experiences in the same house. I recently was on YouTube looking for sound for this show that I do here that we're on now, Twice Five Miles Radio, plus some other things that I'm doing on on recordings. And I came across, (laughs) I don't know why I love this so much, the roosters crowing until they fall over. And did you know that roosters will crow until they pass out? It's the funniest thing I have ever seen that they crow, 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 and they don't take a breath. And then they just pass out and they stand right back up again, of course, after they passed out. Wow, that's another form of hyperventilating. Yeah, the roosters are hyperventilating. Yeah, when I was a boy, one of the stories I remember about my brother, Sam, we were all very close. We lived out in the country on Brevard Road in Western North Carolina, not too far from Asheville. In fact, about seven miles out of Asheville. And my brother, Sam, who is still alive and well and very happy, seven years younger than, than I was. And he, for some reason, decided he was going to make his mark in life by having straight A's. And he achieved his straight A goal from the first grade all the way through graduate school. He never failed. He, he, was, he was brilliant and he was a brilliant mathematician and he loved to play ping pong and chess. And I took it up as well. And I don't believe I ever won a game playing ping pong or chess with my brother, Sam. He was always 12,000 steps ahead of me. And to this day, I have no interest in sitting down with a group of friends and playing board games because my brother Sam always won. So I I lost all enthusiasm for my board games playing because of Sam. I think that we get wired and fired around those early experiences. That's why it's so interesting to me in this older siblings thing, because so many things either went well or poorly in childhood. And then I think when we grow up, it goes into that lane. The genesis of all these behaviors start when we're young. 
And I know as a storyteller, I've heard you perform many times and you have very large repertoire of polished pieces. Most of those pieces are you've developed around your family one way or another, your aunt, your sister, your uncles, etc. How does the podcast differ from that? Or is it inspired by those stories that you've developed and you've told on stage? Well, the ones I tell on stage usually start as sort of narrative poetry. So I write them and then memorize them and then perform them. So this is really off the cuff. We're looking at all kinds of topics, theology and parenting and whatever comes up. It's very different than what I do on stage because that has been worked and reworked and memorized and edited and worked with the director. And so the finished product is something very different than us just sitting down telling stories with each other. So what would be an example, uh, an opening example of something that you have in your repertoire that you could give us right now that would be polished? One of the standards I do, this is probably one of the pieces that I've kept in my repertoire the longest is her purse. And I still do that in shows, but, um, Gosh, I, I usually am cued by the music for that. I've got to think of the first line. It's not coming to me right this second. Isn't I, that incredible? I've had that happen to me too. I've memorized thousands of lines and then sometimes oh, yes. they're just simply not there. And then they bubble out. This is it. The church crouches in the crook of dead man's curve like an old leather catcher's mitt. After the burial huddled on the hill, my daddy read her will then and there. Now my Jebo didn't have a lot, but what she had is what we got and she bequeathed me her genuine leather pocketbook, a bone bag that dangled off her wrist for years like a growth, a bunion or something. You'd have thought she was hauling state secrets or some other family's fortune the way she policed that purse. It goes on, but I've got that one completely up there once I got the first line. So what about that woman would you tell if you had to tell the story rather than to say it? And the reason I'm asking is because you've constructed a, a, a memoir piece that you perform and you've performed many times and you, you actually couldn't remember the first line, which is really encouraging for people when they think, oh, I have to remember everything and get it perfect. We don't. Yeah. We really don't. And yet there's a memory of her. How would you describe her memory? You were just telling it. Well, I would remember her getting a perm every three months on her front porch from her friend Luna Johnson. And I would remember the way she overcooked her vegetables. They'd all turn gray in the pots when you go over to her house because she'd cooked them so long. And I would remember that she lived way out in the country and we had to push mow her grass with a, a mower that had no motor. It just click, click, clicked everywhere. Her purse was literally what was willed to me at her death. So that's sort of where the story came in and her purse became the talisman for her. But I wouldn't tell the same story just as a story than I would as a, a piece that started as a poem. But of course, for people listening, the memories do muddle up and they do run together. And when you work with your memories, it's a bit like working with a kaleidoscope. You roll it around until you stop it and something falls together. And then th there it is, a construction that's made within the kaleidoscope. But I think we can do that as well with our creative work, putting material together that we can then present to the audience. Right. And I think the audience oftentimes too, with memoir type stories, when I'm writing, I allow creative details weren't actually there just because they serve the story. 
I teach a lot of writing groups and we do a type of writing that you try to bypass the mind and just let the story come out without thinking too much about it. Well, now that we're following this thread of emergence, if you will, from the memories of our, our siblings, so someone out there listening, maybe they would like to start writing. What are some basic things that you tell your students that help your students get started? And could you give those hints to some of the people listening today? Yeah. I love teaching groups of people where some people consider themselves to be writers and other people think, I've never written a word. I just have a yearning to write. Starting from that place of I don't know, the type of writing I do, and there's no preconceived notion about it. We'll just give a prompt and then the person free writes to that and just sees what comes out. The writing is actually a teacher. If someone can get out of the way of worrying if it's good or not, because we've all been so trained in school to see what's wrong with our writing. You know, you always got your paperback with red marks on it. And so it's kind of a paradigm flip to just write, never stop whatever comes out on the page and then go back and look and see what works about the piece. And I see people becoming pretty prolific pretty quickly when they'll get the critic out of the way when they're writing. So what would be an exercise somebody could do to start with? There's all kinds of prompt books and there's prompt websites. I like to write in community, but if someone's writing alone, wonderful beginning exercises, just write about your name. Um, you know, does your name connect you, connect you to family members? Were you named after someone? Were you named after a TV show personality? Uh, and just write for 15 minutes about your name, anything that comes to mind. And if your writing ends up going into an area that doesn't have anything to do with your name, you just follow that. It's really just about following the pen into the hinterlands of the page. So how did your name, Minton Sparks, come to be? My grandmother was a Minton who married a Sparks. And so I remember when I was, when I was little, she always called me Minton and she wanted that put on my birth certificate. So she called me Minton my whole life, but my mother didn't like that name because she thought it sounded like a boy's name. So my grandmother and her sisters always called me Minton. And then when I started writing all these stories from the time I was little bitty, and when I started writing in high school, I would always sign my papers that way. It was sort of conjuring of her and an homage to this lineage, the mother line. I remember when I first realized when women changed their last names and how property was passed down through the male line, it just irritated me to death. <laughs> so I loved having my grandmother's maiden name and married me. You've been doing this storytelling business and performance from, for many years, and you have a lot of momentum and certainly had plenty of momentum before COVID-19 came along. And now we're in the later stages of the pandemic. We've been in it a year. We've been off the road. We've been away from our audiences, making up the difference, maybe on the radio shows or online presentations. How has this experience being off the road affected your art forms? Are you different? Do you have more insight? Where are you with it? Yeah, that's the big question I'm sitting with is what's relevant at this point? I mean, I think family stories are always relevant, but I think it's so easy to be socially tone deaf now. So I've really been reading. Um, I've been, I listened to a ton of podcasts. I've soaked myself in this emerging new era and I don't know what I'm going to be doing artistically. I'm writing a lot, but I'm, I'm really struggling with that. 
What, what is going to be relevant in the post-COVID world? How does my work fit into that? I will have my first in-person festival the first weekend of May. I'm afraid I'll just get up there and weep because I've been shut down like everybody else for a year. Really missing audiences and missing the exchange and missing that live contact. I feel like I'm going to have to do it for a while to see if what I have to say is relevant. I mean, I have a new record that I was supposed to release last last March and I never released it. So, And I'm thinking, is this record still relevant? That's that's a profound question because that record may not be relevant. Now, I would think if your record is based on historical work, memories of the family going way back to the other times, it probably would be relevant, but it actually may not be. As you were speaking, I'm thinking, well, what job does the creative person have or the artist have in turning around and around within an environment and then saying something, even though I spend a lot of time thinking about relevance, does any of this matter? Another thought just came to mind, well, maybe it all matters. Maybe everything we do creatively is relevant because it simply is existing within the context of what is now. And we're interpreting it, translating it in a way that might be meaningful for somebody. Maybe not all of it will be, but some of the stuff might be meaningful. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. I released a video during COVID called Fight Club. That was my response to what was going on. And I don't know if that would be relevant in 10 years. I think it's still relevant right now. The creative process is so important. And... The areas in which I'm ignorant, I'm so curious about those, you know, like what I don't know and what I've, I've told myself I've known a whole life and then realize, oops, I don't know that. What voices do we need to hear in through here? I think creating is always, a creative person has to create. What voice gets to the front of the stage is different. I'm interested in that. And when I think about disruption, which is what this pandemic is all about, it's the first disruption we've had in many, many years that was shared collectively around the world. And when I think about how humans interact and have always interacted, we've had wars, we've had pandemics, we've had all kinds of disruptions, and the people who do the creative work, whomever they are, and it can be anybody, they just decide they're going to do it, they've done that work no matter what kind of circumstances they are in, even in the worst situation where you're having the war-torn places today, the conflict regions. And we all know some of where those places are, and many of them we don't know because we don't ever hear about it on the news. And yet there are people making things within those conflicts. So it's more and more possible that our relevance is always on the front burner. We are relevant because we exist and we make. Yeah, I like that. I love thinking of the poets that have come out of war-torn places. They're so powerful. I'm fascinated by how people are making sense of the past year. There's a lot of trauma from the past year. So that's one of the things I'm doing work-wise is holding weekend workshops just for people to have a place to sit really far away from other people with a mask on and try to start making sense of what happened. I don't think people know yet, but just to have a creative space to start processing what happened this year. And what happened is complete disruption of what we considered our status quo. Now, what is interesting 
what's interesting to me is the status quo may not even exist. We may just think it exists. And this disruption is a reminder that, hey, things are moving. This sand is stable within its movement, within its flow, but it is not still. And if we think it's still, that's when we fall down. So there may be something to all of this that we will discover as we go through it. And I think our American culture has been so solid and stable, more or less, for the last number of decades. This is the first time that we've had something come along that we just, we just haven't been able to control, and it could kill us. Whereas in other parts of the world, like the conflict regions we just mentioned, or countries where disease is everywhere all the time, death is, if you will, more public. People see it more often in their everyday lives. And the culture has to adjust to it. The communities have to adjust to it. And I've thought about that all year. What other people have been through that I took for granted or cared about. I'm very interested. I wonder if writing will reflect what's going on in the outer world. And I'm allowing myself to find really different forms for storytelling. That's going to be interesting. Music lead more than the words. Remember Peter and the Wolf? I grew up listening to that. Characters were all instruments. And I was thinking about that with regard to this. Maybe movement is more part of the story than the words. I was in a performing arts group for a long time where there were choreographers and visual artists and musicians and storytellers looking for ways to mash those all together and, and see which one works best at this moment in time. I don't, we don't know. In these groups that you're doing, the distance groups with the mask, and I'm assuming people are there in person, but sitting yeah. at a distance. Have you given any thought to the relationship that we collectively have with vulnerability? Are people more vulnerable now or are they more sealed off and protected? I have meet some people who have acted like there was no pandemic, you know what I mean? Which is crazy. I feel like the basic human vulnerability has come to the surface. I feel like a reckoning with that. I'm doing a social science study on that right now, like interviewing people, talking to people of different ages. I think younger ages are experiencing the pandemic. The isolation is super painful, but they're not afraid of dying. I think it's a big time of, I don't know. So what are you learning by interviewing these people? What are their themes? There has been everything, corporate people who used to have to travel, who've gotten to stay home, a lot less stress. Family life is going better to lots of stories of isolation and meaninglessness because the culture of community had dropped out from under them. And that's how they made sense was through their communities. I, I'm eaten up with that. I keep asking everybody I run into, how have you made sense of the pandemic? And you just see every color of answer. That's an interesting question. How have you made sense of the pandemic? When you are working your own work, how have you in the research that you've done, how have you come to grips with all of this, the disruption that's happened over the year? Has your life found different forms and meaning because of the experiences you've had with this pandemic or otherwise? Yeah, I feel like it's very different. I've kept teaching because we teach outside and can spread out in my driveway. That's one way I made sense of it. Being alone is very different. I'm not traveling. I'm not performing. I do have a new record. My record I've worked on some this year. of a surreal topic where humans and birds begin. That seemed to fit. 
there's a guy who played music in his front yard every Saturday night and people would meet over there in lawn chairs, you know, staying way far away. That was like the high point because Nashville, we just lived by live music. People would play in their front yards. That was one thing I hung my hat on. Also, I just stayed at the river all last spring and fall and stayed in the river on the water. I've been in water all year. So it's it's almost like my uh, self and my brain have unwound in a good way. I think the question of how has one made meaning of it, my answer I come up with personally is there's so many prongs on that fork of how to make meaning. So I'm trying to find community to to look at the question. When you are getting prepared for this show that's coming up, Mm -hmm. how are you preparing for the show? Because it's a brand new evening. You've not been out in a while. So what are you doing to prep yourself. I know in the past, I've watched you work. You do a lot of prep. You do a lot of rehearsal. You do have, you have your director. I know when you get ready to go on, you retreat, you go somewhere privately. And one of the things that you told me once somewhere along the way that often to make your new, you perform from different parts of the body, your knee or your ear or your little finger on the right hand or the little finger on the left hand. But I really love the idea of the body being more than just a body, but being a, a repository. So how are you preparing for this new show? And tell us a little bit about that. Well, that's interesting you said that because that's how I memorized my work. The first line in one toe, that's how I retrieved it a second ago because I knew I'd put that in my right pinky. So when I went there, that first line was there. I'm preparing in that I'm trying to see what would be comforting. I feel like we need comfort. And I think there's something about holding space for people and telling them stories that can be comforting. And so that's going to be my first show because I'm kind of a disturbing performer (laughs) historically. People say, oh no, don't do that to us. I'm emotionally exhausted. And then they'd come back the next night. It's not that I'm going to tell milk toast stories, but maybe conjuring the past so that people can conjure their own past. And I do know one way to lower cortisol. So we've all been living in these cortisol fired up places is to go into long-term memory. Actually, neuroscience research says if you can go into long-term memory, your cortisol levels will come down. And so throwing people back into their own stories before COVID happened, thinking about a great revival of community and reviving it through stories and reviving it by helping people to be thrown into their own stories. I rarely go perform anymore unless I teach, so that people get a chance to write their story too. So what would be a sample of a story that you might be telling that would be comforting? For example, Her Purse, the story you referenced earlier about what your grandmother left you. I think that's a comforting story. It's comforting. Most people had either a mother or grandmother with a purse. The world is still turning. Ladies still have purses. It's interesting, that story, her purse. I've heard that many times and I do enjoy it. It's one of the things I like about your work is you can play it like a song over and over again. And it's easy to listen to and it's new every time, even if it's the same recording. And what I remember about that story is you were the little girl, mm-hmm. your grandmother died, you went to the funeral and then she bequeathed you the purse. And you were very happy about the purse And you were sad because your grandmother died and she was no longer with you. And then if I'm recalling correctly, I may be making this up, so I don't know if this is part of the story or not, but somewhere in the story, as you're grieving your grandmother's passing, a note tumbles out, a memento hidden in the purse. 
And that's when you discover your grandmother was in love with the fellow down the road and nobody knew about it. And he was obviously in love with her. Your straight-laced grandmother, who was always in the front pew of the church, your grandmother had broken all of the societal rules for love. A love she kept secret from everyone except the man she loved. This love was actually more precious, more divine, more treasured than her straight-laced living. What's relevant? The straight-laced life that maybe keeps you a bit stiff or, you know, falling in love and going away to a dance or a picnic with the one you love rather than selling the cows down at the market on a windy day. Yeah, it was so lovely. The sacred and profane aspect of it made me love her more to know she was that real. I loved that part of her. And that's what I love in every story is the unexpected. Set up the character. We think we've got the character, which I love that in movies or, you know, in storytelling too. And it's like, oh, there are all these other dimensions to the character. I know when my father was on his last month or so, I didn't realize it, although he was ill, I decided to do something that I'd never done before, which was to break the mold, uh, disrupt the status quo, and interview him as if I didn't know him. Oh, wow. And I'd never done that before. And I'd always had this sense of, well, my father is my father. And, and our relationship was rather stiff. So when I would go to see him, he would say, well, how are you doing, son? And I would go, well, I'm doing okay. That's good. How are things in your life? Well, they're fine. I, I'm doing fine. I've been doing this project or that project. Oh, that's good. Okay, well, uh, I'm, I'm glad to hear it. It's, it's really nice. Okay, good. It was one-dimensional. Right. So I walked in. He was ill. And I said, I wanted to ask you a few questions. Can you tell me about what it was like when you were in high school? And what was your girlfriend like in high school? Oh, let me tell you about Inez and how he went skinny dipping in the creek in Chucky, Tennessee. And I'm like, I'm not even talking to the same guy. Could you tell me about your music? Oh, I love my fiddle. And how did you get your first fiddle? Oh, I stole it off a mantle in Germany after the Battle of the Bulge when we liberated Germany. And I brought it home and played it for the rest of my life. He stole the fiddle off a mantle in Germany. And that's what happened in, in the war. The, the soldiers would take things. And I guess my father figured since the Americans were liberating Europe, why not liberate a fiddle from the mantle of a German household? But I never thought about that fiddle having its origins on a mantle in, in Germany in 1945. And so here we come back to the status quo. What we think about somebody or the stories we know about them. Minton, if you don't mind, I'd like to pause for just a moment and take a station break. Then we'll get back to our conversation about relevance. You are listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. We're always broadcasting this show first on WPVM LP Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world, and also... On other community radio stations like KCEI-FM, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com, if you'd like to know more about Walter's music. If you would like to reach out to me, JamesNave.com, 
That's my website. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. You can always email me through my website. I would love to hear from you. And if you'd like to know more about Twice 5 Miles Radio, twice5miles.com. You'll also find a little information there about things you can do to get your work over the finish line. You might enjoy it. So, Minton, let's get back to our conversation. The reason I brought up the story of my father was because when you were talking earlier about your podcast and how you want to interview your older siblings, I was intrigued by that. And even though my father clearly was not my sibling, I still was able to ask him a question or two that prompted him to go back to when he was younger. And that enlivened him made him happier, really. And he smiled and smiled when he told the story of how he got his fiddle. Because he loved to play it, and he did play it all his life. I loved hearing that. What a great story. I could see it, though. I think people have lived, and then there's no arena to tell. Because we have boring conversations, for the most part, (laughs) instead of really getting to know each other. So what are you up to now that the pandemic is waning, what kind of conclusions have you arrived at? Are you getting ready to change everything? Are you going to keep everything the same? What's happening? Yeah, I don't think I'm going to keep everything the same at all. I, I'm actually looking at doing some interdisciplinary master's work, intersection of the arts, how that would work in a performance. I'm interested in that. Um, I'm working with a choreographer now trying to tell a story through the body. I like the challenge of that. And I'm kind of waiting and listening. There will be a time to get off the ground and move into the world. I definitely have different things to say now than I used to. How do you listen? I'm listening with my interactions. I'm watching people. I'm watching their willingness to connect. I think there's been a real retreat around connection. I'm watching in the psychological hurdle of getting back into connection with others once it's safe. In an old therapeutic way, I'm listening for the understory. I'm always listening not for what people say, but what's sort of underneath that. Body language, behavior, who people are drawn to, what artists they're drawn to, what music they're drawn to, what they do for art or lack thereof. That's a great question. I know I'm doing it all the time, and I don't know exactly how I'm doing it. I've been thinking a bit about it because I've been reading one of Julia Cameron's recent books titled The Listening Path. And she was asked to write a book about listening. And of course, Julia Cameron's written much about creativity and certainly listening is part of that. Of course, when you say listening, or when I hear that term, I think of what I hear through my eardrums. Yet, when you broaden that idea to include receiving rather than listening, So the question might be more, I am receiving and using listening as part of that reception. That seems like what it is. It's receiving the world, knowing that I don't know it all. (laughs) So I'm in learning and receiving mode, hoping art comes out of that. And then when you receive it, as you said, you hope art comes out of it. it. Do you hope that art comes out of it or do you believe that art will come out of it? I believe eventually art will come out of it. Finding footing feels important. Not going back to old footprints. It just feels like something fundamentally has shifted. And I think art is interesting because we always say, well, what is art? 
an acting teacher once said to me, art is really from an acting point of view as the actor, if you decide you're going to do enough work on your piece, your character, so that it might move someone just a little bit, then you can declare it art. Susan Batson was her name, but she said, because it's the intention you said, I'm going to try to make something that will inform, change, help, delight somebody else just a little bit, not dramatically, nothing great, no big Mount Everest to climb, but just give somebody a little shimmer. And if you can do that, that's art. And I've come to think that if we engage ourselves with that kind of intention, no matter how advanced you are, or even if you're a beginner, you're listening out there right now to this, and maybe you've not thought of yourself from an artistic point of view. And yet I'll bet you've made some scrambled eggs and served them to somebody with the intention of changing their mood with the care you put into the eggs. That might be a start in calling, calling your eggs art. Some people would disagree with me on that. But if you do it all the time, constantly thinking, how can I offer something as a gift? And so maybe art is the inevitable result of our receiving, which we are calling listening, and then doing something with it, as you do. I like that thought. At this point, coming out of the COVID crouch, this unthawing, unfolding, finding footing, tender gestures of nature that filter their way into the day seem to be something to hang on to. I've heard a lot of people talking about their relationship to nature shifting. I know you said you spent a lot of time at the river in the past year. What have you noticed about nature that you didn't notice before? Have you had different kinds of communication with the animals or with the trees that you didn't notice before? Very different. I have disappeared into nature all the way. I always knew that humans aren't separate, but I've had many experiences because I've been in the river a lot and I've been in the ocean more and I've been in the woods more. I don't think of myself as on the earth. That perspective shift has happened over the past year. And that's been a really wonderful thing. Do you think of yourself as an animal? For sure. Yes. Much more because I think things got so slow. Oh, well, what am I going to eat today? <laughs> the smallest kindnesses from other people because the world has been deconstructed have meant so much. I do think of myself as an animal. As I mentioned to you, I'm living out in the country in Taos, and we have a fair amount of animals wandering around the neighborhood, or more accurately, past the door of the studio where I'm living here in Taos. In fact, you've stayed in this very studio that I'm in uh, now because you came out and featured in some of our events in Taos, the Storytelling Festival, and you stayed here at, at this place that I'm renting. So you know the environment that we're in, and, yeah. and you know that you'll hear the coyotes and see the different kinds of birds and the hawks, and occasionally the deer runs by, and then the, the coyotes, of course, they own the whole place, so they romp around like it belongs to them. It occurred to me as I've been watching them go by, and they're not that unfriendly. They'll look at you and move along. So it's not as if we're that separate. But I know that sometimes if I ask somebody, oh, do you think of yourself as an animal? They'll say, well, absolutely not. I'm a human. And, and, and they get a little ruffled thinking, oh, I am an animal. Mm -hmm. And it occurred to me that we are the only species that doesn't see ourselves as an animal 
we will identify ourselves as something separate. And yet all the other creatures, when they see us, they don't identify us as separate. They think of us as, as animals. They think of us as just part of the environment. So you've got trillions of species looking at us thinking, well, there's just another animal walking by. And here we are going, well, we're not animals at all. I think we're a bit outvoted in terms of how the rest of the crew sees us. That's interesting because I was snorkeling over the winter and I remember like a shark came up and the person I was snorkeling with said, you're bigger than them. Don't worry about that. That interaction. Wow. What a great way to regard everything. I mean, plants, I think, regard us in some way. I mean, maybe it's just the exchange of oxygen and all that. But Well, I think plants do. I've come around to thinking that with the root systems and all of the ways they are able to communicate, they likely have some kind of organized awareness, organized consciousness that we, we don't really know about, nor can we see. Although I think some research has been done that says that, yeah, they, they actually do have that. There's so much involved in the root system and, and how the root systems must communicate. Do talk to the plants. I'll say, hi, plant. How are you? Hello, tree. I love that thought. With my kids, we did the fifth grade thing, playing music to the plants. They all grew more if you played music to them. Well, Minton, I think we've come to a nice place to close our interview, talking about music, which brings us back around to what you do. You're a singer, songwriter, a poet, a musician, a performer, and, of course, a teacher. Before we go, can you tell people how to get in touch with you so that folks could reach out to you if they want to tell you their story, what's going on with them. You're collecting stories all the time. Yes. I'm at mintonsparks.com and I actually have a little platform people join so that they get a prompt every week to write to, and then they get a video every week and then we have writing classes. So that's all at mintonsparks.com. Oh, okay. So we can just join up mintonsparks.com and all kinds of little activities. And when things loosen up, you'll be doing workshops and et cetera, et cetera. Yep, for sure. And until then, you will be seeking relevance. Oh, up one side and down the other. (laughs) Well, Minton Sparks, good luck on your relevance and everything else. And thanks so much for being on the show today. Okay, thank you for having me. And that, my friends, was my conversation with Minton Sparks. We have some time before the top of the hour, and I've saved that time because I would like to play some of Minton's music to entertain you as well as give you a sense of her range as a poet and a singer-songwriter and a storyteller. So let's start with her purse. That's the story about Minton's grandmother we talked about earlier in the show. So this is Her Purse, written and performed by Minton Sparks. The church crouches in the crook of dead man's curve like an old leather catcher's mitt. After the burial, huddled on the hill, my daddy read her will then and there. Now my Jubbo didn't have a lot, but what she had is what we got. And she bequeathed me her genuine leather pocketbook, a bone bag 
that dangled off her wrist for years, like a growth, a bunion or something. You'd have thought she was hauling state secrets or some other family's fortune, the way she policed that purse. Set it down, Mama. Might as well have been kiss my ass in that woman's mind. Well, lumbering back to the car, I didn't get far before I knelt down in the Johnson grass and exposed her Tennessee tote sack to daylight. Chiclet spilled when I clicked open the clasp. A vial of pills rolled out in the grass. Some butter rum lifesavers and a narrow tooth comb. Chapstick, shed keys. An old birthday card she'd gotten from me. Wadded up Kleenex and a half a stick of double mint gum. What I really wanted was a rubber change purse. The thing's probably now on the floorboard of the hearse. It was red with a slit down the middle. She'd pinch it open, take her pointer and thumb, and then press the coins down into my palm at offering time when they passed the plated church. there in the side zip pocket where I found a secret she thought she'd buried. It was a love letter from a farmhand Howard McDaniel. I love you too. Scrawled in the margin of the yellowed note. Her purse gaped open there in the grass, contents exposed. Y'all, I felt like I'd stolen her clothes. This woman who swore she was never naked before her own husband. Thank you, Steve. And that was Minton Sparks performing her purse. As you listen to the piece, you may have been wondering, is that a story? Is it a poem? Is it a song? One of the things I've always liked about the way Minton approaches her art, she blends it all together. And so you do ask those questions. Song, story, poem. Well, it's all three as far as I'm concerned. And now I would like to play for you 
a new piece that Minton just posted on YouTube recently. It's titled Fight Club. And if you Google Minton Sparks Fight Club YouTube, you will see it there on YouTube. The reason I'm suggesting you watch Fight Club by Minton Sparks on YouTube is so you can get a sense of how Minton also blends video editing into her music, her poems, her storytelling. It's a remarkable thing to watch how Minton collages multiple faces into the video and they all match the words she sings as we go through the song. Of course, you're not able to see it because this is a radio show. Even so, I'm confident you will enjoy Fight Club by Minton Sparks. The number one rule about Fight Club is you never talk about Fight Club. Our family had a gun case with a glass face filled with a hunting rifle, a pearl-handled pistol, and a couple of sawed-off shotguns. Basic black Buick had a bumper sticker said, Corporal Punishment, a God-given good idea. She hated those left-leaning liberals, time out, talk to your kids, crumb bums, basically building a devil's army of ne'er-do-wells. If you don't whip these kids, honey, they're going to wind up in jail. a fight club put up your dukes and teach them might is right club blister their bottoms tan their hide kind of love trust us she's gonna break your back why look at old alice Aker, she cautioned those kids crayon colored all over the walls that wet noodle just sat there sipping sanka smoking cools they're gonna wind up doing time
We didn't cuss or smoke. We just whipped and yelled. Because the road to leniency leads straight to It's a simple message, packs a powerful punch. When there's a dispute over who's right and who's wrong, you ball your fist, baby. The battle's on. It's simple science. Mathematical, you stab a rod, you're gonna stab a world. Once the barrier of soft skin is broken, and human decency is no longer spoken. You basically got a bunch of spiritually justified ass whippings happening all over town. The preemptive is redemptive, or so they say. simple mama not love not grace not forgiveness not even hate if there's one thing we know for sure we cannot make this family great again by beating each other's bottoms we're broken monsters taking fears revenge blind to compassion we're that was Minton Sparks performing Fight Club. Of course, you can learn more about Minton Sparks by going to MintonSparks.com and there you will see lots of other videos and links to her poetry, her storytelling, her songs, her workshops, and her upcoming shows, which are fortunately starting to happen again. MintonSparks.com and as we head into the last few minutes of our show, I would like to encourage you to tell your story. Minton Sparks has her own style, and every storyteller has an equally different style, and that includes you. So Minton pulls from what she knows. She pulls from her family, like I pulled from my father stealing a fiddle off the mantle in Germany. Minton also has another wonderful song I like very much called Fill Her Up, and it's about when her mother worked at a gas station outside of Memphis. So you may have a story about something that's happened in your life. If you do, which I'm sure you do, this is as good a time as any to start thinking about how you would like to tell that story. And I'm sure when you put it together, you'll find plenty of people who will be happy to listen. And I'm happy that you've been listening to this show, Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering 
I'm your host, James Nave. We're always broadcasting first on WPVMLP, Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world and on other radio stations, other community radio stations, KCEI-FM, out of Taos, New Mexico, for example, Cultural Energy Radio. We thank you for broadcasting the show. I'd like to thank Walter Parks for our theme song, WalterParks.com. If you do work up a story and you would like to tell it on air or have me read it on air, jamesnave.com. You can email me through that website, jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. I would be happy to receive your work and most intrigued by finding out what you have to say, jamesnave.com, if you are so moved to do such a thing. If you would like to learn more about Twice Five Miles, Radio and where that name came from, twice5miles.com. There you will find little bits of information and tidbits as well that will help you get your work over the finish line. Uh, The theme is the stuff nobody teaches you or tells you. So we have a bit of fun with that. And to close, here's a line of poetry from Charles Wright's Lonesome Pines Special. And in that poem you will find this question. What is it inside your imagination that keeps surprising you at odd moments when something is given back you didn't know you had had in solitude, spontaneously, and with great joy? I'll say it one more time. What is it inside your imagination that keeps surprising you at odd moments when something is given back you didn't know you had had in solitude, spontaneously, and with great joy. And on that note, I hope you do find great joy in whatever you do. And I hope you've enjoyed listening to my conversation with Minton Sparks and all of her music I played after we finished talking. So again, thank you ever so much for listening, and please do tune in again next time. Until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.